Amen. That was beautiful. Thank you, Amanda. July 30th, 1945, World War II. It was a heavy cruiser, the USS Indianapolis. Should have a pick, yeah. It was heading home across the Pacific, having delivered a cargo of en enriched uranium. And at the time, I think it was the most amount of uranium in the world on that ship that had been delivered. And it was going to be instrumental in the ending of World War II, but it, on its return back, a Japanese torpedo ended that return journey, and it was sunk within 12 minutes after being hit by two torpedoes. And 300 men went down with the ship. Other 900 people uh, bailed into the water, and they obviously were in a, in a world of trouble, in that salt water, uh, four days, five nights, uh, no protection, very little water, very little rations of food, and no protection from the sharks. Of the 900 that entered the water, only 316 were rescued. The chief medical officer, Captain Lewis Haynes, was one of the survivors, and he said this about what happened. When the hot sun came out, and we were in the crystal clear water. You were so thirsty, you couldn't believe it wasn't good enough to drink. I had a hard time convincing the men that they shouldn't drink. The real young ones, you take away their hope, you take away their water and their food, they would drink the salt water and would go fast. I can remember striking men who were drinking salt water to try to stop them. It looked like it was good water to drink. You see, the reality is we get dehydrated spiritually. And the question is, what are you drinking this morning? Are you drinking the salt water of this world? Are you drinking the living water that brings life? Sin is a lot like this salt water. It looks so good and we get real tempted just a little bit. And you drink though and you die. The Apostle Paul put it like this in Ephesians 4. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to, the hardness, due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness in holiness. Let me pray for us. Lord, your word is truth, and we ask that you would sanctify us in the truth, Lord Jesus. Speak to us now, Holy Spirit. We pray that you would weed out the sin in our hearts, and that you would reign and rule over us, and that we would yield completely to you, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So we're, we're going through Ephesians, and, the, and last week we looked at the first part of Ephesians 4, which is the believer's relationship to the church. 
That's verses 1 to 16. And, the, and that's the, the first half. The second half is the believer's relationship to the world. And so the first half's all about walking in unity. Walking in unity, although there's great diversity of gifts. But this week, it's all about walking in purity, that you're in the world, but we're not of the world. And there's a repetition. Whenever I see repetition, I always like to point that out, and I think it's important for us. But three times in this chapter, we're given the phrase, no longer. So in verse 15, we're told we're no longer to be children. In verse 17, we're no longer to walk as the Gentiles walk or as the nations walk. And in verse 28, we're no longer to steal. So there are certain things that we're no longer to be. And then we'll focus in on verse 17. We're no longer to walk as the nations walk. Um, so the reality is this. There's a constant discipleship program of which you and I are enrolled in. How's your schooling going? We're, we're always involved in discipleship. The question is, who's our tutor? Who's our master? And what are we learning? And sometimes we're like fish in water, and we don't even realize how much water we're drinking and consuming. And we have certain slogans that are part of our society. So you could probably finish these sentences. When in Rome, do as the Romans do, right? What happens in Vegas? Stays in Vegas. This idea you can hide your sin. If it feels good, that's dangerous. I've, heard, I've even heard this from a believer before. Years ago as a young Christian, relating to adultery. It's okay to look at the menu as long as you don't order. Yikes. And if you're a parent, and many of you are, how many times, if you had a dime for every time your children said to you, one of your children said, but all the other parents let their children watch it. All the other parents let their children do it. Everybody else is at so-and-so's house. And the parents are put in this difficult spot. But as children, we're no longer to walk as the Gentiles do, the nations. The word is ethne, and it's referring to the culture and what everybody else is doing. And we get this tenfold spiral. This is like Romans 1. If you're familiar with Romans 1, it's a spiral downward of sin and idolatry. Well, here's the tenfold description of why we're not to follow the world. It says, you know, do not walk, you know, reject this kind of discipleship. Well, here's the problem. There's feudal minds, number one. Number two is darkened understanding. Number three is alienation from God. I'll go through these later, so if you want to write them down, you can write them down later. Number four is they're ignorant. Number five is they have hard hearts. Number six, they're callous. Number seven, they're given over to sensuality. Eight, they're greedy. Nine, they practice impurity. And 10, lo and behold, it's in, in our own hearts and, and it's corruption through deceitful desires. That's the tenfold problem. So let's consider that. I mean, you take that in, that's pretty scary, isn't it? When it's describing what sin does. First of all, we have this idea of, he says, feudal minds. He says, do not walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. And this futility is the same word that Solomon uses in Ecclesiastes. 
And, and it's used for the word meaninglessness. It's the word hevel in, in Hebrew, but in, in Greek, uh, it's this, if you looked at the Septuagint, same word. But the bookends of Ecclesiastes are this. If you're wondering what the book of Ecclesiastes is about, well, beginning to end, we have the same theme. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanities. Now, I wasn't great in math, but I can count how many times it mentions vanity in one verse. How many times? Five. Uh, trying to beat it into our heads. And then at the end of the book, when you get to the conclusion, he says again, vanity of vanity, says the preachers, all is vanity. This idea of futility is that if all there is in this life is just the dash between your birth date and your death date, and that's what's put on your tombstone, and all you have is a little dash to live for, if that's your life, that's it what Solomon calls life under the sun. If this is it, there's nothing beyond that. It's futile. I love how Dave Hawes, and Dave didn't know I was going to share this, when he was describing to me in his Sunday school class, they were talking about Erica Geary, and some of you guys obviously remember her, but some of you that don't, that are new here to the church, Erica was a very young, godly lady who just loved the Lord, and she loved animals, and she did great things. She advanced in her medical training. She went to vet school, and now she was doing her um, working as a vet, but she was planning to go to Mongolia to be a missionary, and she died tragically in a car accident, uh, early 20s, mid-20s. So, and the difficulty is, is, is it's, it's a temptation like with those five missionaries that were killed and the, and the Life magazine article that posted, why this waste? And it's, we want to cry out to God, why this waste? Because it seems as though Erica's life has just ended. All that training, all that work, all that talent, all those abilities, all that love. And Dave's point was, it's not ended. It's suspended. It's suspended until the new heavens and new earth. And Erica will get to use her skills, her passion, her love for animals. It will be used and it will be needed once again. And she will continue where she left off. It's been suspended, it's not ended. Because Jesus Christ rose in the same body that went down into the tomb and was crucified and he's rose up and now he's raised us with him to newness of life and he's ushering in a new kingdom. He's ushering in the, the new, and so right now does matter for eternity. We don't live for the dash and not just life under the sun, but we reject futility. We, we see life has ultimate importance. We live in a culture that, that kind of magnifies this much ado about nothing. And I mean, if you watch the last Seinfeld episode, the whole spoof was, you know, it was a vanity of vanities and to laugh that you're still watching this and we'll have everybody testify that we are a bunch of bozos that can't help anybody and deserve to be in jail and everybody convicts them and we laugh. Well, the biggest craze right now with the youth, and I haven't seen this, but I've heard about it, is the 13 Reasons Why, okay? So this was a big Netflix show uh, or series and it's about a young girl who gives 13 reasons why she's taking her life and then it graphically shows her taking her life in the last episode so you don't need to see it you already kind of know where it's going okay well if you look at a website up online 
um, the 13 reasons. This is what it says. It's pretty shocking. It says the number one time, New, number one New York Times bestseller and modern classic that's been changing lives for a decade gets a gorgeous revamped cover and never seen before additional content, including the until now secret alternate ending, ending for Hannah and Clay that almost was. Well, guess what? It wasn't. You see, Hannah lived a life to get revenge, to get attention, and to absolutely maximize her utter selfishness and to untap this insatiable self-absorption was to take her life. It was her, her way to get back. It was her way to think that she could be there to enjoy this, but the reality is she wasn't there. Hannah died. She was listening to lying lust. This is what Paul's talking about. It says we're being corrupted by lying lust. The idea of corrupted is, is corroded, is decrepit, it's dying. And this is, what the, this is what these sinful desires are ultimately leading to. Is there such a contrast between these two schools of discipleship? One is leading to death and corruption. The other is leading to recreation, to being renewed in the image of God. It's leading to life. And we're no longer living for futility. We're living for purpose and for a life that matters. And we no longer, we reject this idea of, a, of, the, of the darkened understanding. It's, it talks about this idea that, that those who indulge in sins, it says they're, they're darkened in their understanding. Do you see that in verse 18? This idea is scary is that spiritual blindness is far worse than physical blindness. Because at least when you're physically blind, you know you're blind. But the, the essence of spiritual blind, blindness is deception. I mean, you remember John 9 at, at, the, at the conclusion? You know, they didn't know they were blind. They're like, are, are, are we blind? And Jesus has to tell them, yes, you're blind. You see... There's this interesting thing about how sin works in self-deception. John Frame writes about this in his systematic theology, and he, he uses a couple of verses like John 7, 17 and Romans 12, 1 and 2, where it talks about we, we, by not conforming to the patterns of this world, but by being transformed by the renewing of your mind, you're able to discern or prove what the will of the Lord is. And he says this, this is the process of ethical renewal. And it is by this process, Paul says, you'll be able to prove what the will of God is. He said, this is the opposite from what you usually hear. Generally, the advice we hear is to learn the will of God, then we'll be able to become more holy. That advice is true enough, but it works the other way. Be transformed, and then your renewed mind will be able to discern God's will. The idea is this. You can't be a good theologian if you're living in sin. You can't. Because sin is working against you to blind you. And so part of being, you know, we like to say life is built upon doctrine. It's the other way around as well. Doctrine's also built upon life. And so meditate on John 7, 17. I can't give you everything in the message, but there's an important principle here of how we have to live the word so that we can understand the word. They're both true. A theologian I read this week, A.H. Strong, in his systematic theology, says, before regeneration, before we're born again by the Spirit of God, man's knowledge of God is the blind man's knowledge of color. The scriptures call such knowledge ignorance because the heart does not appreciate God's mercy until God shows us. 
And then we're alienated from God. Colossians 1.21 just puts it simply, and you once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but he has reconciled you in the body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus came to bridge this gap, to remove this alienation where our iniquities had separated us from God. His purpose was to bring us to God. And so he came and died on a cross. Then it says this problem, it says that we are because of the ignorance that's in them. This is the Greek word agnoia from where we get the word agnosticism. It's this idea that there's an ignorance. And the world likes to say ignorance is bliss. Well, the Bible says the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he's raised his son from the dead. And so ignorance of the law, now you could say, is no excuse. And so First Peter, Paul, Peter just says, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. I can remember as a new believer, you know, sometimes you can just kind of be ignorant of things, but you don't realize you're ignorant. I can remember waxing eloquent as a, as a just a sophisticated 17-year-old convincing this Bible study that it was okay to date unbelievers. It's okay. And I can remember, you know, giving my rationalization and seeing bewilderment from some of the people looking at me like, where's your discernment? You know, like you're, you're, you're foolish, you know, but I was ignorant. I was still lots of, lots of darkness because I, I wasn't being transformed by the word. I would say to us as a, as particularly the young people here, listen up for a minute. We are being clobbered over the head with the acceptance of the LBGTQ lifestyle. This is big. And Francis Schaeffer's motto was always to love people, to love truth. Are you doing both? Are we loving people and loving truth? And we can err on one side or the other. We certainly have to love people well. We gotta love the truth. And we need to read good theologians like Sam Albury and Rosario Butterfield who struggle with same-sex attraction. But they both have this same message, and the message is this. Is that anybody that is a follower of Christ has to give up something. Jesus says, you know, put your nets down and come follow me. Everybody has, has a call that they've got to die to something. We've got to die to something. We've got to leave something to follow something. So every believer had to leave something whether it was just absolute selfishness or fornication or adultery or homosexuality, but we gotta leave something so we can follow something. We have to embrace that. And I'm, I'm, my concern here is that the LBGTQ folks, they don't wanna embrace that they have to leave anything. And we have to challenge them as we love them just as we, much as we would love somebody sleeping with their girlfriend outside of wedlock. Hard hearts, that's the next one, is this hardness of heart. This idea is actually a stubbornness. It's an unwillingness to learn. It's what First Timothy calls, it's kind of scary. First Timothy 4 says, the, spiritly, the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. It's like being seared by an iron. And we become hardened. 
And then it's this idea that it says they have become callous, verse 19. Now, if you play guitar, it's a great thing to have calluses on the end of your fingers. I don't really have them anymore because I don't play much anymore. But the idea of the calluses is really nice. So you can play without pain. So you're no longer, you know, played it till my fingers bled, as uh, Brian Adams used to sing. Okay, the idea is your fingers get calloused. But the more you play the guitar, the more you can just play for hours. You play with sin, and you indulge in it. And you develop calluses in your heart. And you're no longer being stabbed with the pain of sin. What pricked your conscience initially? I know I shouldn't say that. I know I shouldn't be listening to this. I know I shouldn't be watching this. I know I shouldn't be hearing this. I know I shouldn't be living like this. And then it's like, well, come on, it's not that bad. Everybody else is doing it. We can always compare ourselves to, there's always some people that are worse than us. I mean, it's, I mean, compared to so-and-so. And we can make ourselves feel better. But there's this vanishing conscious, conscience slouching towards Gomorrah. Those are some book titles from years gone by. This idea of losing shame, no longer being embarrassed. And even worse, Philippians 3, Paul says that, that unbelievers actually glory in their shame. Now they're actually boasting in things that they should be just absolutely ashamed of. And then, so it, you can see how this is a cycle downward. And then in verse 19, it says they're given over to sensuality. They're no longer living with any restraint this is idea of a lustful indulgence. It's an indecent, outrageous sexual behavior, debauchery, indecency, flagrant immorality. It's behavior lacking in moral restraint. It means a lot of things, but it's often tied in with the deeds of darkness, works of the flesh, and it's often tied in with porneia, of pornography. So, and then it says that they're greedy. They're greedy. They always want more, just a little more. It's like, it's a scary thing. Some of you may have followed the draft this weekend, NFL draft. Anybody out there follow the NFL draft besides me? There's always hope, I think, for the Redskins. They're always great in May, and they're the best preseason team around. And so this is, you know, hopes are high, so I was following to see who the Redskins would draft. And they drafted this one guy out of Arizona, Arkansas that, he actually dropped in the draft because he was arrested for shoplifting. And so when I read this story, I thought, how sad and ironic about this, this draft pick. And hopefully, he will learn from this. He may even get saved. But here's the story of what happened. He goes to the Belk Bowl, okay? The Belk Bowl is in Charlotte, North Carolina. I actually went to school with Henderson Belk, who was super high up in the Belk business, and he was retired, and I took seminary classes with this guy that was extremely wealthy. Well, Belk had the bowl game there, and Arkansas was there. Every single player on the team got a $450 gift swag to Belk. So you had a $450 gift card, Come and enjoy $450 of supplies from Belks. Well, Jeremy, this guy that the Redskins just drafted, I think what happened is, because he, he said his comment was, this was totally out of character for me. And he got arrested because he also took a Ralph Lauren shirt 
Tandoori spice marl colored shirt, Nike black crew socks, and two wallets, an extra 260. See, he, he, I don't think he would have gone in there and stole if he hadn't had his heart fed with greed, like, hey, I got $450, but his heart started seeing, but I want more. I want more than the 450, and if I could just have this other $260 worth of stuff, let me just sneak in a few more things. And he said, this was totally out of character for me, and the, and the reality is for us is that we have to wake up and realize, no, wait a minute, our hearts are capable of this. Like Bilbo Baggins, you know, you remember the scene where, where all of a sudden the ring is in front of him and he's this picture of a redeemed guy and all of a sudden, rah, you know, he turns into a monster for a second and it's meant to scare you on purpose. Like, it's in us. There's still a part of us that will grab, that will do that. That we can be greedy, practicing impurity. This idea of practicing all kinds of unpurity, uncleanness. I've heard of people telling me their testimony before that they would come home and just take a shower. They're trying to wash away all the guilt and all the pain and all the sorrow of spending a night of filth and they go home and take a shower but it's not working. It's like Macbeth, I just can't get the stain. I can't get rid of this bloody stain. And they become corrupt through deceitful desires. Paul's concern to the church in Corinth, he says, I have a divine jealousy for you, for I have betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that just as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray or corrupted, same word, from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul was concerned that this church in Corinth was giving way to these worldly patterns and that we would no longer live for what we were made for. There's four infinitives in this passage. An infinitive is these two verbs, right? So look at them. Verse 17 and 19, we're to no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. Verse 22, we're to put off the old self. Verse 23, we're to be renewed in the attitude of our minds. And verse 24, we're to put on the new self. And these four steps, they're simultaneous. They're not a staircase to be one climbed at a time. As, you know, it's the idea of putting off, putting on, and as one commentator put it, is two blades of a pair of scissors. You have to have both. If you only have one blade of a pair of scissors, how well are you going to do in fighting sin? If it's all about just, just putting, just, I just got to deny myself, just got to kill it, got to kill it, got to kill it. But we're not putting on. Christ, or if we're just going to focus on putting on Christ and, and not thinking about, okay, I got, there's certain things I got to die to. It's both. And so Paul contrasts in Ephesians 4, there's an old self and there's a new self. The old self is to be put off. The new self is to be put on. The old self is corrupt. The new self is being recreated by God. The old self is deceitful. The new self is truth, is in truth. And Paul says, you didn't learn Christ this way. That's pretty emphatic. But this is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard him. Verse 21 puts this weird word about in the ESV. It's a bad translation. It's just assuming you have heard him. He's the teacher. He's the subject. We are the disciples. 
but it's not about him, it's him. Assuming that you've heard him, have you heard him? Has he spoken to you? Has he directly called you to himself to come and follow me? Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Are you following him? You see, there are two schools with two different teachers with two different ends. There's no neutrality here. We're either becoming more and more conformed to Christ or we're becoming more and more conformed to the world. Our hearts are either getting harder or softer this morning. We're either detaching from this world or we're attaching to this world. And we're either attaching to Christ or we're detaching from him. Where are you drinking? There's two schools. And we're no longer to imitate this world, imbibe its culture, consume its impurities, drain it to the dregs. We're not to wear what they wear, practice what they practice, consume what they consume. That, that this school is built on a foundation of deceit and lies. It's like Delilah. Delilah pled with Samson, do you remember? The story, she said, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? And you've mocked me these three times and you've not told me where your great strength lies. And she pressed him hard with her words day after day and she urged him. His soul was vexed to death. That's what Judges says. And Delilah is is a personification of sin. She doesn't love Samson. She hates him. She's using him. And through lies, she convinces Samson that he's the problem. You haven't given me your heart. How can you say I love you? See, sin always wants to go deeper. Give me more of your heart. Quit mocking me. I'll be true to you. Where does your strength lie? All the while, it's seducing you to betray your very loyalty to God. And so where's your heart this morning? G.K. Chesterton said, when a man refuses to worship God, he doesn't worship nothing. He worships anything. What are we worshiping? And what, and what Paul is saying is the way that you've learned Christ, we're to put on the new self, the new man. It's the inward renewal by the power of the Holy Spirit as we gaze upon Christ. There's these different verses in the Bible that 2 Corinthians 3.18 says we're transformed as we behold the glory of Christ. We're transformed from glory to glory as we behold him. He's to be the subject. We're being conformed to the image of his son. That's the promise by the spirit, Romans 8, 29. God has promised that he's in the business, if you're his, that he's gonna conform you to the image of his son. And so we're outwardly wasting away, but inwardly we're what? We're being renewed day by day by the spirit and we're not being dehydrated by the world. We're we're being changed by the word of God and as we reflect and look at Christ, we're being changed. We are new people, new creatures. I said three times that, that the Bible says that we're to be no longer. Did you catch that in this chapter? Well, here's the reality. This is what we are now in Christ. Listen to a couple of these verses. The Bible makes a big deal about no longer. We know our old, this is Romans 6, 6, 2 Corinthians 5, 15. Listen to these verses. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 15, and he died for all, Jesus, that we might, not, might no longer 
live for themselves, who live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and what? I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So this no longer that we're being commanded to do is first of all told us this is who you are now in Christ, is that there's been a once for all definitive breach with sin, as John Murray used to call it. It's a definitive radical break. I don't want you to leave here this morning thinking that there's an old man and a new man and they're equal powers, like you've got a Dr. Jekyll and a, and a Mr. Hyde and, 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 and one is just as strong as the other. That's not what the Bible's saying. We know our old self was crucified with him. That's my position in Christ. That the body of sin might be destroyed. That's my position in Christ. That I might be no longer enslaved to sin. That's a threefold change. If anyone is in Christ, he's what? An old creation? Is that what it says? He's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. It's a real struggle, but it's not an equal struggle. You can't be regenerate and unregenerate. There's a guerrilla warfare that's still being raged, waged, but the city has been taken over. There's a new regime. And now there's some sniper shooting that's going on, and we got to walk by the Spirit and put to death the misdeeds of the body and not gratify the desires of the flesh as we live with what the Bible calls indwelling sin or the confession calls it remnants of corruption or Calvin calls it vestiges of sin. And the idea is that there's still something very real. But we are called now as his people because this is who we are now. We're to put on. What are you to put on? Well, the Bible says we'll put on a lot, actually. We're to put on Christ, Galatians 3. We're to put on the armor of light, Romans 13. We're to put on the whole armor of God. Colossians 3 says we're to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, 1 Thessalonians 5, we're to put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet, the hope of salvation. Here's an interesting thing. The word that's used here when it says that you are new, we are new now. Well, there's two different words for new in Greek. You got kainos and you got neos. Kainos is the idea of fresh and distinctive, and neos is the new in the sense of young. Well, which one do you think is being used here? Colossians 3, its counterpart, uses kainos of this idea of fresh and distinctive, but here it actually uses the word neos, implying that we're to put off the decrepit of what's making us old, this old man, old nature, and now we're to regain this undying youth. We're to put on this new man. Here's the fountain of youth. Here's the forever young idea. Where are you going to find that? The culture's just screaming, man, I'd love this idea of something that could make me new again, something that could make me young again. Well, there it is. It's in Christ. You're a new creature. We're new in Christ. Now, some of you might be thinking this morning, I counseled somebody recently that just told me I was trying to give them some hope. And he said, but you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. Now, you don't know how bad I am. And when I hear that, what I hear some people saying is, is I am junk. I am dirty. And what I do is dirty because that's what I am. And it's this sense of hopelessness. Maybe you're there this morning. You feel like you've blown it, man. You have done these 10 things. You have imbibed the culture. You've drained it down. And now, there's, is there any hope? 
And I want to tell you there's hope this morning because Jesus Christ died on a cross. He, came, he died on the cross for who? He came to seek and save the lost and to die for sinners. I want to end with another story about a ship. I told you about the last one that sunk. Well, let's go back to World War I. There was a British small hull steamer making its way up the English Channel, 1918, World War I. And the lookout man noticed a white line coming swiftly towards the ship. And no doubt about it, it was a torpedo from a German submarine, which was right at that moment rising to the surface. The sub was to view the damage of its work. And the lookout, naturally, he gave a shout, and the people on board, they all ran over to the side to look, but it was too late. Nothing could save them. Here comes a torpedo that's going to blow us into pieces. And here's what happened. Only a few yards from its target, something went wrong with the mechanism of the torpedo. It reared its nose out of the water, turned course, and shot and fast, on, and it went back to the very path it had just traversed, and before those hapless British seamen knew what had happened, they saw the torpedoes smash into the German sub and blow it immediately to the bottom. What do you do if you're on that ship? You say, oh my word, I should be dead. We should be dead. But the, and the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is that somebody came and took your place. There's been a reversal, a 180 of where we should have gone. And the very one who was accusing you, now he is struck down. And we are victorious in Christ. We live through another man's death. Put your trust in him and live for him and be his follower. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would have mercy and forgive us. We are prone to wonder, prone to leave the God that we love. And we want to be more like you, gentle, humble. We praise you for the way you trusted your Father in every area of life, 40 days in the wilderness. We thank you that that's our righteousness that's been imputed to us through one man's obedience, the many have been made righteous. We thank you. Lord, we ask that you would make us more like you in all that we do and think and live and say. Help us to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond in singing how firm a foundation. Let's sing these promises.